Welcome back, guys. This is now part three of our critical care episode. We're going to change speed slightly and talk about ventilation and ARDS, which is a topic that we've seen very little of over the last few years. So we've got Maddie, our Westmead ICU fellow, and she's presenting a paper called Comparative Effectiveness of Protective Ventilation Strategies for Moderate and Severe Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, a Network Meta-Analysis, and it's by Sud et al. Thank you for having me. Uh, so this is a paper that was published in June 2021 in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. Just for and it was done by some Canadian clinicians. So a bit of background: ARDS has become a bit more increasingly recognised and diagnosed. It is a complex problem. With many research studies that have come out throughout the more recent years, looking into ventilation strategies as well as rescue strategies as well. In fact, there were some studies that suggested there was some underdiagnosis of it. And so over the years, I believe the ventilation strategies that we now use more routinely have been termed lung protective ventilation. So this is including lower tidal volumes, optimal peak strategies, and looking at things as peak pressure and driving pressure and permissive hypercapnia to avoid the iatrogenic complications of overventilation. Coming back to the paper, so I think the COVID pandemic highlighted the need for us to understand optimal ventilation strategies in ARDS, as well as recruitment strategies and which ones were better than others. And the current guidelines as suggested were for lower tidal volumes, higher peak optimization with prone positioning and other strategies such as VV ECMO and higher frequency oscillation um, were still on the cards. However, there are a few studies that directly compared the prone ventilation, VV ECMO and high peak strategies, and therefore network meta-analysis was proposed. An initial one that was done earlier in the piece, um, I think, showed that VV ECMO had a higher place in the beneficial things to do, even over prone ventilation and high peak. But this conclusion, I think, lacked sort of external validity because most of the VV ECMO trials were including quite significantly unwell patients with severe hypoxic respiratory failure and ARDS. And hence, that brings us to this paper, which was done with the advances in the methodology for network uh, meta-analyses, which I had to look up. So apparently it's a technique for comparing three or more interventions simultaneously in a single analysis by combining both direct and indirect evidence across a network of studies. To go through the population, moderate to severe ARDS patients and the interventions that were looked at were low tidal volume, high tidal volume, and a combination of either high PEEP or proning with all of this, as well as high frequency oscillatory ventilation and BV ECMO. The outcome overall was actually hospital mortality or mortality at the longest point of follow-up, which is up to six months. And the basis, as I mentioned, was mainly because the clinical and scientific concerns that the initial network meta-analysis may have been biased by the greater emphasis based on statistical ranking methods over the certainty of the evidence available, which I'll go into a bit later. 
to go into the methods, so literature search, systematic reviews, Medline, Embase, Cochrane reviews up to November 2020. And the eligibility criteria for this study was they included only RCTs, studies with adults with ARDS, so excluded animal trials, studies that compared experimental lung protective ventilation strategies. As I mentioned, so that's low vent tidal volumes, high P, VV ECMO, daily proning, and high frequency oscillation, and also had reported mortality at hospital discharge that was able to be followed up. Risk of bias was assessed as per the Cochrane risk of bias. I won't go too much into the statistical analysis, but effectively there was a publication bias was visually assessed on a funnel plot. There was for each end intervention also a sucra thing, which is called a surface under the cumulative ranking curve. Effectively, the higher the number, the higher the likelihood that the therapies ranked high amongst the interventions that were analysed. And that was how they looked into sort of the certainty of the evidence so as for the grade of the actual studies that were analysed. All right. So then to go the results. So there's 34 trials that were included after quite a few were excluded based on the exclusion criteria and effectively 9,055 patients were included in it. The median of the PF ratio is about 118 and the peak was actually 12. However, with the VV ECMO studies, which there was two included, the PF ratio was about 74, which is quite significantly less comparatively. The risk of bias was actually quite low in most of the trials, so 14 trials, and the moderate in you know, about 18, and only two trials had quite high risk of bias. I didn't look into which specifically they were. So the results of the network analysis showed pretty much that low tidal volume and proning had reduced mortality compared to all other interventions, and this included high toilet tidal volumes with or without PEEP, and also in comparison to low tidal volumes by themselves. VV ECMO and low tidal volume with proning as well as low tidal volume with high PEEP actually didn't show any significant difference in the mortality. But um, as I'll discuss later, the certainty of the evidence with regards to the VV ECMO was a bit lower. So the relevance of that was still that it wasn't as high in the ranking of interventions that was proposed, which is probably consistent with clinical practice. They also looked at the data by limiting um, the analysis to the only the quite severe hypoxic respiratory failure patients and that actually didn't change the outcomes of their findings as per their sensitivity and subgroup analysis. The main finding of this meta-analysis is that low tidal volumes and proning achieves the lowest mortality in critically ill adults in severe ARDS. VV ECMO may also be among the best interventions, but as I mentioned, it has a less confidence in its rating as an intervention compared to the tidal volume findings. So it would still be considered lesser as an intervention. And as you probably already are aware, the higher resource utilization, mobilizing a patient to another center has also got its risk and benefits. I won't explore more about the discussion because I am assuming that you guys will discuss this, but obviously there's strengths and weaknesses to this trial. And the limitations mainly being that you can't really generalize the VV ECMO related stuff, even though they've done an improved methodology. 
and also it excluded mild ARDS patients within this analysis as well. Yeah, amazing, Maddie. Thanks for that summary. This was a pretty complex paper. What actually is a network meta-analysis? What, what does that term mean? It's a piece of statistical trickery they can use to marry a large numbers of data sets that potentially don't measure exactly the same thing uh, and uh, reduce all of them to uh, simple numerical relationships and then compare them. And the validity of that is probably more mathematically derived than it is practically established because ultimately what, what you're looking at with this study is a paper that uses this incredibly sophisticated statistical technique to arrive at an answer that all of us will have already arrived at intuitively. <laughs> um, that's that proneness and uh, low tidal of ventilation is going to be the thing that in combination saves them the largest number of lives. That, colleagues, is uh, absolutely the expected outcome of any such meta-analysis. Uh, and the reason I say that is prone is awesome. We all know it's awesome. Perceiver trial that brought its awesomeness out into the public eye, 2013, had a number needed to treat of six, right? Wow. There is nothing else in intensive care medicine that was as positive a result as this, except prior to this, the other most positive study that we had was the ARDSNET trial in 2000, which had a number needed to treat of uh, 14, uh, absolute risk reduction of 7% mortality in ARDS from low tidal volumes. So, I put to you that it is not surprising that the combination of these two techniques is somehow beneficial, right? <laughs> so it probably doesn't require like a, a network analysis of, uh, um, but it, it is good to have that uh, statistical derivation for, for this because it, it confirms what we all kind of know. Uh, and it's good to have that confirmation. It's good to know that what we're practicing is actually safe and good. What is odds? Is it like sepsis in the sense that we intuit its presence? without actually knowing what it is. I know obscenity when I see it, but I can't define it. <laughs> exactly right. So I suppose it was a poorly defined phenomenon and hence the Berlin criteria came about at some point. And that A was to help diagnose it, to facilitate research and data being collated and therefore interventions can be assessed, hmm. but also just in general so that we can identify it within our patients the Berlin criteria, so obviously severe hypoxic respiratory failure, so it has to be within one week of an in, like an actual cause. So it can be caused by many things. So it can be pulmonary and extra pulmonary. So, you know, pancreatitis can cause ARDS. We can get different types of sepsis, pneumonia, like viral, as well as bacterial. And, you know, there's a myriad of causes of it. That, so it doesn't actually include that in the definition, but there has to be a trigger and it has to be within a week of that trigger for which you get X-ray changes of bilateral four quadrant changes not explained by fluid overload or other pathologies or heart failure. And also, I think there's also a PF ratio, which is then the further definition of the mild, moderate, severe, yeah. which is where you get moderate to severe ARDS criteria. Because anything less than 300 is mild, less than 200 is moderate, and less than 100 is severe. Most studies look at PF ratios of less than 150 to, I don't know, incorporate the halfway. Thickest ones, yeah. Yeah. But I think overall, I agree with that. It just reaffirms what we already knew. And then BV ECMO will be of additive value moving forward as it mm. becomes more widely available. Yeah. And then we can test VV ECMO against you know, ventilation strategies. All in all, you know. There's, yeah, you're right. There's no new evidence here. Correct. Well, it's, it's really interesting what you say about VV ECMO because that's, um, it's a thing that is really hard to investigate whether or not that's actually better than anything because 
let's face it, when they get bad enough, they're going to need it anyway. And then that becomes difficult to randomize. So the group that you can study it in are people who you wouldn't necessarily want to inflict VV ECMO on. There is probably a subset of patients who they would be equipoised for. And these are the sickest of the ARDS patients who are still kind of okay on conventional uh, or prone ventilation, right? So then you'd say to yourself, aha, this group, uh, I'm going to put them on ECMO so I don't have to ventilate them with stupid volumes and pressures, right? Uh, so then you reduce the volume and the pressure to something laughable. Like I think we've had you know, people on the 30 mil tidal volumes in the ICU, <laughs> uh, you know, at a respirator of 10 as a lung protective strategy. And then their lungs can fill with all kinds of abominable gunk. And that is just fine because they are on ECMO and it doesn't matter. And then you wait it out and then their lungs will eventually recover. And that period of lung rest during which you do no further harm with ventilation is where the benefit of VV ECMO will be. And because it's so, uh, I mean, it's become so incredibly safe that it's actually a plausible trial to run. So that's probably where you'd find its greatest benefit. Yeah, it's really interesting that this study included High frequency oscillation data. Oh, I was about to say Ooh, what the hell? 2010. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. This is, this is, this is nice. like, yeah, what a lovely sound that was. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a brutally stupid thing to do to people, and we finally realized this, and I think 2013 um, or 2011 when they finally buried that technique, and we banished those devices uh, into basically neonatal intensive care, where there is still some evidence for them. Yeah. <laughs> Purely at the start, things that we would do in the ED, when they compared low tidal volume to low tidal volume, high PEEP. Low tidal volume, high PEEP seemed to be better. How high is high PEEP? What's a good starting point? In this particular study, they looked at high PEEP as anything above what was suggested by the ARDSnet table. Um, I think we've moved away from the ARDSnet table because their PEEP table was quite ridiculously high, especially the pandemic with COVID patients, we noted that the PEEP actually that they did better on was lower than what we would normally routinely have done with the traditional ARDS patients. So that's just a caveat of individualized PEEP management. But I think a good start would always be 0.1 mils per kilogram centimeter okay. water, yeah. just as a start for PEEP. And then you can always titrate it at the bed space as you watch the response of you know, increasing peak by two, checking the peak pressures, checking tidal volumes, and also just minimizing harm is, the, I think, the end goal. There's no good evidence now for recruitment maneuvers, so we won't be doing that to try and figure out the optimal peak. But I think that's what I would start with, and I would increase it and look at the tidal volumes as well as the peak pressures as you try to find what is considered optimal. Um, there's obviously many ways to look at peak optimization. How do I rationalize this? So for me, everyone just gets six mils per kilo and five a peep, and then we figure it out from there. Is that appropriate or should we be using the 0.1 mils per kilo as oh. Maddie suggested or what should so, we be doing? For the intubated drunk, that is perfect you can't kill that dude. Certainly not with the ventilation strategy, right? Uh, so so uh, there's, there's going to be a massive range of people in the ED that get intubated for reasons other than lung failure. And that group is, uh, that also includes a bunch of people that come in and get intubated as elective surgical inpatients or outpatients. And five of people for them is pretty harmless in the sense that, so maybe they'll collapse a base or two, and then they'll wake up, they'll have a good cough, They'll swear at the nursing staff and self-discharge and they'll be fine. So the group in whom the PEEP titration becomes actually important are the kind of patients that like you would get ICU to come down to the ED to assess and to help you ventilate them. That's It's probably going to be the people who have something horrible going wrong with their lungs. And in that group, you do need to probably 
changed that. Uh, and six mils per kilo is probably still safe for the vast majority of them, but um, the peep of five probably is something you would need to work on. How you choose your peep, as Maddie has alluded to, um, there's a vast amount of literature related to this that I would broadly describe as voodoo. And it ranges from doing Byzantine uh, kind of uh, calculations, uh, plotting curves of compliance, putting in pulmonary artery catheters and measuring shunt fractions. Uh, oh my God. Uh, and, and things like that. And so I will point you to the wise words of a, a heavy chain smoking intensivist from Belgium, Luciano Gattinoni, who's basically published all the literature on IRDS ventilation. It was this amazing guy in a paper that I keep quoting to everybody in 2018, basically wrote that optimum peep is an illusion and it doesn't exist. And so high peep for sick people and low peep for normal people is arbitrarily chosen by somebody experienced is actually as good as any of yeah. these uh, random number generating strategies that you might read about. When I'm revisiting my patient half an hour after, you know, I've, I've done a blood gas, you know, I'm like, oh, the, the oxygenation is still not great. You know, they're still on 60%. Presuming that I start with that sort of 0.1 mil per kilo, like how do I adjust? So this is the premise, right? You're trying to fix it. It won't fix. It'll fix with time as patients get better, but it won't fix now. So it's about optimizing what you can right now and then leaving things well alone don't touch. I always think about peak pressures and plateau pressures. There's a combination of thought process around plateau pressures being a little bit better in terms of judging how the lungs are going to respond. I think 0.1 mils per kilo roughly equals out to most people at seven to eight centimeters of water of peep. And that's probably enough. You can trickle up or down a little bit more than that. But once you're hitting peeps, I mean, I've, I've seen many a trainee hit a peep of 15 or 16 and you kind of go, what are we trying to achieve here? Yeah. There is something more wrong that, that you're not seeing to hit a peep of 16. Okay. Just like the, everyone turns the pressure support up more if people are not responding. You ask yourself why, and then ask yourself, is that a bad thing or is it an expected thing? If it's an expected thing, you can leave well enough alone. I think you need to get older or you, you take your hands away. Part of it is just, you know, experience intuition, but also it's about allowing time for things to progress. If you're changing the knobs every five minutes or every half an hour, you're not giving things time to get better. The story that you're describing is it's you, you've even down adjusted your expectations of the oxygen. I know I'm, you know this is a normal person who's not a smoker, but I'm still okay with sets of 88 to 92 here because I don't want to have them on 100% oxygen, right? And still they're hypoxic on 100% oxygen and their sets are like in the low 80s, say. How do I adjust the ventilator is your question. And it is legitimate to do peep games in this scenario, because that might uh, improve the oxygenation of some forgotten collapsed lung regions. And you, you might be able to achieve that by increasing the peep a little bit. And 15 is where I probably would stop just because, and there is, that's not an arbitrary number, 15, 16 roughly is the peep at which for a patient who is fasted or for a patient who has come to the ED and hasn't been very well fluid resuscitated yet because you've only just tubed them, that's the point at which they start dropping their cardiac output to something like uh, 60 to 50% of what it previously was, purely because of the preload decreasing effects of the PEEP that you've put them on. And you can reverse the fluid resuscitation if you're aware of the fact that that might be the problem. That's the PEEP threshold roughly at which you start causing harm with PEEP. And without advanced monitoring, without a little bit of time to spend with the patient, you may not necessarily have, you might actually want to leave it at that. You can play other silly games. You can, for example, change the IE ratio and ventilate the patient with a longer inspiratory time to get more mean airway pressure. That might get you a little bit of extra oxygenation. Uh, that's probably the only other thing. And to potentially decrease your tidal volumes even more if you're getting really high 
vegan plateau pressures um, to like four mils per kilo even and just tolerate some hypercapnia would be the other thing that you'd have to do. That six mils per kilo is almost a standard now, as we've already alluded to. Are there any situations in which that's going to cause harm? Ah, so what you're asking is, is there scenarios where that is too much or too little or too little? It is possible that it is too little for people in whom height and chest cavity size are not particularly well correlated. And that is a very small subset of the population who are um, dysmorphic for whatever reason, or potentially, like for example, achondroplastic dwarfs is a, the example that I always give to that answer. So that you'd need to intelligently adjust to what their height would have been, <laughs> which is probably uh, difficult to assess. In some people who have severe traumatic brain injury, permissive hypercapnia when low tidal volume insulation may actually be detrimental to their brain. So you would prioritize brain over lung and you would potentially uh, ventilate it with higher tidal volumes just to be able to achieve enough CO2 clearance to get your 35 to 45. There are people in whom that would be too much. So I'm going to bring up again the, the concept of the baby lung, right? So in the ARDS or severe lung pathology, let's say that you have aspirated so copiously that you've taken out the vast majority of your lungs and what's left is probably like a little apical segment there that you still ventilate. So that apical segment is going to get all the pressure and all the volume that you're giving. So in that group, you might need to decrease your tidal volume expectations and just ventilate that remaining patch of healthy lung with a respirator of 32 or something and smaller tidal volumes. I guess we kind of have our two basic ventilation strategies. We've got our odd strategy, low tidal volume, Hopefully ICU will turn them over at some point. And then we've got our asthma strategy, which is, you know, low peep, short respirate, allow them to expire, maximize the IE ratio. What about the asthmatic who has odds? You get the intensivist out of bed. Yeah, that's that's really challenging. So you're not going to have great victories there. Fortunately, if you have asthma, it means usually you have gas trapping. If you have a gas trapping, usually it means you have auto peep. So your pressure requirements are often covered in that scenario. So you actually don't need to do very much more with the peep. You should measure it. You should probably keep an eye on what it is. Keep to the same plateau pressure requirements that you would normally do for ARDS, but you wouldn't add a lot of extra peep on top of that. And you will find that your tolerance for hypercapnia becomes rather extreme in that scenario because your CO2 clearance is going to be your biggest challenge frequently. The patient who has asthma and also a severe lung infection will often be in a position where their CO2 is just 80 for sustained periods. And that you're going to have to live with that or put them on ECMO. Actually, that whole permissive hypercapnia thing is really, really interesting. We don't actually have a threshold for where we say enough's enough and I'm going to do something. The old ARDSNET trial in 2000 had permissive hypercapnia and there on average was about 55 million millimeters of mercury. So that's how much they permitted, but it went up to 65 in other studies like Oscar and Oscillate had quite high. And if you read uh, papers by you know, eminent authors about this, they will all differ in their opinion, but will have somewhere in the 80s as their threshold for, for, for doing something about it. And the main reason for that is because beyond that point, um, the thing that begins to have an influence is mainly the acidosis that is produced by this, because the acidosis will then make your inhaled or intravenous uh, bronchodilators less effective. So salbutamol does not really want to bind to its receptor at a pH of 7.15 or so. They're very reluctant. So about a fourth of the affinity, which means that you need to use four times as much salbutamol uh, and it just stops working. So uh, that's the, the rationale for keeping the CO2 as, as low as you can and, and um, trying to find other mechanisms of removing CO2. People with bad lung infections who are asthmatics or brittle asthma, they just died at the end of a tube. 
generally. Okay. So we're lucky now because we have better techniques, but we also have ECMO. I think these are the ones now where we're just sort of very early calling Alex and saying, what do you think about ECMO? And we'd actually, we'd do it earlier because what you end up doing if you don't put them in ECMO is you tolerate these preposterous values, right? So a CO2 of 80, we're saying it is permissive, right? We're permitting this to happen, but it's actually, it's not benign. It's not because we, we like a CO2 of 80. It's got quite impressive. For example, it's a, a very powerful cerebral vasodilator, which completely breaks your blood-brain barrier, causes cerebral edema. The way that you die of asthma in ICU these days is not of hypoxia, hypercapnia. It's from brain death because you, your brain becomes so edematous. Yeah, it's for that reason we would resort to ECMO earlier and earlier in this kind of group, particularly when it's clear that uh, strategies are not uh, working. And depending on your size, you might end up on two circuits for CO2 removal. What, like, what are the boundaries of permissive hypercapnia? And like, more importantly, how do we actually adjust when we're getting to these? You know, like when the pH is 7.1, but they're already on a respirator 20. How high can we go with that respirate before they start breath stacking and causing further problems? Until they start breath stacking is yeah. where you keep going. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> so that breath stacking, the, the, what, what tends to develop, so we're talking about an ARDS patient who's got really, really high CO2, and it's because your tidal volumes are really, really poor because the ARDS is very, very severe. Lots of things you can do about this that mainly involve either increasing the tidal volumes you're able to deliver, for example, by prone ventilation, because you turn them over, you suddenly have a much better FRC and everything. Or you can increase the respiratory rate until such time that it starts causing a clinically significant gas trapping effect, which in the non-bronchospastic people could be around 35 or so. So you could actually push the respirate quite high. I would strongly caution listeners from against doing this routinely because that's uh, that can cause trouble uh, on lots of different levels. That's probably as high as I've gone. And if you are at a respite of 30-something with small tidal volumes and still the CO2 continues to rise, you may have to cheat and do things like, for example, alkalinize the body fluids using a third buffer system other than bicarbonate, like THAM, for example, or use dialysis to correct the pH, yeah. uh, or use extracorporeal uh, CO2 removal. That's the kind of territory that you'd go into. Call Alex. <laughs> Don't is... pull out the THAM. Call Alex. <laughs> yeah. It's very easy to talk about strategies and you know, manipulating, and we can prone in ED. I think we've done enough in COVID to be very comfortable doing it. Prior to COVID, you would have got cheap white faces at you know, the thought of proning someone and proning them properly. Yeah, it's more than just turning them on their front. There's a lot, <laughs> it's a lot, you know, of there's a lot more involved than in that. Yeah. And I think we learned with COVID that, you know, what it actually involved and in getting early physio to help achieve that process. The big thing is that once you're getting to the strategies limits within an ED and an ED resus bay, and you're using ventilation techniques, which you're not comfortable with, patients need to move somewhere else where they've got the time and the expertise and the access to other things that may help. Now, buffering pH and buffering dialysis is something we do in tox a lot, you know, and we get them to Alex when they look normal with MCPA, bromoxanol overdoses mm -hmm. to do that, to achieve it early. Mm -hmm. So you wheel them up in the first five minutes while they're awake with normal blood pressure, normal heart rate to have that intervention now. It's not now, it's not going to be useful to get ECMO availability. You can't get ECMO in ED. Yeah, you, you can hard. pretend. You can yeah. pretend that you can, but you can't really. It's really hard. Mm. So ECMO retrieval have achieved that. The Americans have achieved it by using LVADs for short periods of time until they get to a proper ECMO center. I suppose that the big takeaway is that you can do small things to try and see whether your strategies are working. But if you feel that it's not working, 
the phone call to the intensivist to say it's not working usually opens a bed reasonably quickly. Or potentially, status. if you say it three times in a mirror, the intensivist will actually appear out of yeah. a fiery <laughs> pentagram next to you. Um, because that, that we, we typically like to get involved. It's We can troubleshoot and give you advice over the phone, but uh, we'll typically become anxious and then we'll, we'll turn up to the ED randomly and start looking at the waveforms of the ventilator ourselves. So yeah, it's... Yeah. Uh, I think calling friends is really important. I think you, what we do as this emergency physician sometimes is internalize all our angst and want the patient to reach a level of illness before we then want someone to come and help. Again, swing and roundabouts, I'm getting older now and I quite often call the intensivist on call myself yeah. and say, I need this from you now. And hopefully if you know people, they understand that you don't generally call them directly when you know you don't need to and, and things move quicker. So I think really sick asthma, really sick ARDS need to be somewhere other than ED yeah, in a shorter time frame. Mm. Yeah, they're not going to get better in the ED. They'll get better over 21 days with a tracheostomy and things. So that's, you know, their journey through healthcare is, is going to be long. So you shouldn't expect yourself to, to solve a lot of their problems from the ED point of view. What about the patient who you can see a bad trajectory, but they're kind of all right? How soon do you need to initiate the prone ventilation? Are there any situations where you'd initiate the ECMO, even though maybe they don't quite physiologically need it yet? So, I mean, in terms of proning, as early as possible. We talked ourselves out of a lot of things prior to COVID. We couldn't do high flow. We couldn't do proning. We couldn't do non-invasive on a back wall. Needed to be in a resus bay. And you know, by rights, it should be a one to two nurse ratio. So ratios, you know, restricted what we could do. I work at Nepean ED primarily, and we were doing high flow, non-invasive and intubated patients in our short stay ward <laughs> during COVID. You know, during the really peak period of COVID where we were just not set up for lots of bed spaces, we were doing all those things outside of resource space. I think you can do it. And we had physios coming to ED with lots of pillows and proning people properly in ED. And we learned how to prone people properly. And then we didn't call physios. We just found pillows. So I would say early proning, early recognized, well-researched ventilation strategies initiated as early as possible, and then give them time. And if it's not working, you can tweak. But when you tweak, you call. You would prone an intubated person in the ED as well? Yeah absolutely. yeah, absolutely. So the earlier, the better, and it uh, decreases the duration of the overall ventilation. Um, uh, it's highly satisfying because the next morning, the chest X-ray looks substantially better oh. after a night of proning. So it has lots of benefits. And the data suggests that the earlier you do it, the better. The later you leave it, the less of a positive effect it will have, possibly for reasons that are related more to the kind of way that organizing changes tend to develop in the lung that's been pneumonic for a long time. <laughs> become very difficult to reverse. Uh, fibrosis starts happening and you won't be able to fix those chunks. Earlier is better. If they have something that has just happened like a big aspiration event, proning early is particularly good for this because it will achieve postural drainage of all the grossness. So that is um, by far the most effective thing you can do for them. If you can't prone them, at least put them bad lung up and then get the physios to beat them up in a, like a re lateral recovery position. And that's probably the other thing that you can do that would be really beneficial in that scenario. I was just going to touch on a point that one of the senior intensivists upstairs told me in the middle of a resuscitation that this is not just ventilator associated, that you, when you're bag masking people, that that's something, these are things sort of processes you can keep in mind. Those small tidal volumes, that peep sort of process, that long thing can actually be done when you're bagging the patient rather than just waiting to stick them on the ventilator when you get downstairs or to a various place. And that's something for, particularly for people that may not have the ventilator capacity in peripheral places is reasonable to keep in mind. That's correct. Manual ventilation is like mechanical ventilation in the sense that 
It's ventilation. Don't give them uh, 800 mil tidal volumes by squeezing the entirety of the uh, Laredale bag. ECMO side of things, any other situations where you jump to the ECMO? So things that would make you not jump to the ECMO are less invasive things that you haven't tried yet. So it's trying less invasive things and failing that demonstrates the need for ECMO. And that is where you're probably... So uh, when I say non- less invasive things, I mean, you know, either prone ventilation has already been trialed and has failed, or it's unfeasible for some reason. Like, you know, And the unfeasibility, actually, the we've proned people with traumatic brain injuries. We've proned patients in the third trimester of pregnancy you know, patients with a uh, mediastinal vac dressing. So we've broken all the rules. So it's possible to prone pretty much anything these days, or at least poor man's prone, which is like left recovery, 45 degrees down, that kind of stuff. And adequately fluid resuscitating the patient before you commit to ECMO, because sometimes you get into a situation where you, you, through your aggressive PEEP, create this huge West zone one. And so you, you create a whole massive amount of dead space. And so fluid resuscitation actually fixes that, potentially making your hypoxia much, much better. So that's another thing. You to Frequently, the ECMO team will turn up, give a couple of liters of fluid before they... Uh, and in any case, to volume expand the patient before going on the circuit is really important because it's a huge circuit. So you drain the patient into it. Uh, and so giving them a little <laughs> bit of... Does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So you're basically expanding the circulating volume quite substantially by adding a whole lot of piping into it. Because of that, you, you probably would need to anyway, just as a preamble, like a, a prelude to ECMO. So that kind of stuff. If you've got big peep, if you've got severe hypoxia still in spite of that, and you've done the I ratio playtime and you've proned the patient or you can't, and they're well-filled, at that point, the ECMO referral becomes the, the next logical step in escalation. ARDS, right, is a uh, syndrome that is produced by some kind of primary pathology. ARDS is not the disease. ARDS is your response to influenza A. It's your response to inhaling two liters of beer. Uh, it's your response to severe pancreatitis and a cytokine storm from HLH or uh, whatever else it is. But basically some underlying cause exists and to uh, fixate on the ventilator waveforms without treating it would probably lead to badness. So probably like antibiotics, uh, you know, that kind of stuff, probably treating the underlying causes is important. So that's probably something to mention. There's stuff that we do in the ICU that you guys in the ED probably don't have access to, like nebulized inhaled vasodilators like aprostanol and nitric oxide. Oh, I don't think there's going to be any situation where I could, I can't see myself bringing the nitric oxide machine down to the ED <laughs> and like hooking it into the wall and explaining patiently to everyone what I'm doing. I, don't, I can't see that happening. So we've got your six mils per kilo tidal volume, your 0.1 mil per kilo of PEEP, optimize the respirate and basically call our friendly ICU colleagues, maybe say hi to them politely as they walk past so that they think of you as benign. That's basically our initial plan, it sounds like. Now, Maddie, do you have any take-homes for us? ARDS is caused by something else, so don't forget to treat it. If the patient deteriorates, always think about other complications of our ventilations so like pneumothoraces and make sure that's not, you know, uh, the reason why the patient's getting worse rather than what we're doing isn't working. And I suppose do no harm. And that's the whole point of the lung protective ventilation strategies these days is that we avoid having to go down the pathway of needing other interventions. As you mentioned, the tidal volumes and PEEP. Uh, This paper mainly might actually almost allude to the fact that we shouldn't really be going with the higher tidal volumes in general. Excellent. Thank you guys so much. That was an amazing discussion. Uh, Listeners will have gained so much about just the nuances of the things that we do quite regularly, but maybe can finesse slightly. (laughs) 
That's correct. Manual ventilation is like mechanical ventilation in the sense that it's ventilation. Oh